Hello and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Today we're talking about propelling your career through public speaking with our guest, Brendan Kumarasamy. Brendan is the founder of Master Talk, a YouTube channel he started to help the world master the art of public speaking and communication. He coaches purpose-driven entrepreneurs on how to master their message and share their ideas with the world. Brendan joins us from Montreal. Brendan, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, you too. Yeah, very Great cool. Great to have you. So you help individuals perform better as public speakers. How did you arrive at this mission? Yeah, for sure. So when I was in university, I used to do these things called case competitions. So think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were playing basketball or baseball or some other thing I didn't really understand, I used that same competitive spirit, I guess hockey since we're Canadians, and I applied it to presentations. So for three years, suffice to say, I presented hundreds of times, coached dozens of people on public speaking. And by the time I graduated and I got a job in corporate Canada, I guess, kind of just asked myself a simple question, which is how do I contribute more to society? And that's when I realized that a lot of the communication and uh, public speaking information out there was really bad. You hear stuff like, oh, Mike, Lisa, you should like be yourselves and get up on stuff. I was like, what are you supposed to do with this advice? It's so vague. <laughs> so I started so making videos. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So I started making videos in my basement and then one thing led to another and here we are today. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, be yourself. That is a, it, it's thoughtful. It can be useful, but it is hard to apply. Be yourself as a advice point. I like that comment. Okay. And bringing this to career building, career development, what makes public speaking such an important skill for someone who takes their career seriously? Right. I think there's a couple of things that, that stand out to me right now, Mike. The first one is most people get hired on hard skills, but get promoted on soft skills. Hmm. So let's say you're an analyst at a company. You're like, oh, are you good at Excel? Can you get this deliverable done? But if you're a vice president, you're pretty much just managing other people. So if you're not very good at compelling a vision, it's going to be much harder for you to train and inspire the people around you. So let's say you're, you go from manager to vice president, all of a sudden you're managing a team of 10 people to 100 people since the VPs manage the managers and the managers manage everyone else. So at some point, as you keep going up, the more people, right, the people that you have to present to increases as you go up. So that's one part. You know, it's, it's good for career progression. And the other side of it is the job interview process where I'm sure we're all mm -hmm. familiar with confirmation bias, right? It, recruiters either like you or they don't in the first five minutes and they base the rest of the interview based <laughs> on those first five minutes. So if you're not an eloquent communicator, you're not putting the odds on your side. So the, the key is by mastering communication, you can build a very strong first impression and increase the chances of you getting a job. Makes so much sense. And I love how there's something here for people who are looking for a job and or may already be employed and are looking to develop internally. Cool. Yeah, I also want to just pull out a point that you said there, because people often think of public speaking as saying a speech in front of a large room of people. But you just talked about mastering communication. So what other types of public speaking are there when you're looking at your career? Right. And that's a great question, Lisa. Like thinking about that holistically, the way I've always seen it is you're absolutely right. Public speaking is very little to do with presentations. It's rather every interaction that you have as a human being. Hmm. It's when you pick up food from the delivery guy 
and interact with or delivery gal. It's it's the way that you talk to your family. It's the tough conversation you have with that family. It's every interaction you have in your life. And the better you get at communication, the quality of your life increases. I'll probably miss most of the different public speaking styles, but I'll give you the main ones that stand out to me right now. First one is, of course, presentation skills. Conversations would be another one. Guesting on shows, you know, doing an interview style is a different type. Stand-up comedy is another one. And those different types of styles vary in how you communicate. But the general idea is simple. As you become a master of one, you slowly become a master of all. So the secret to communication is that it's a multiplier effect. You start by mastering one vertical, let's say presentation skills, and then you get really good at presentation skills, which automatically makes you a better conversationalist. And then you master that and then slowly you become a master of many areas. That's interesting. I've worked with someone who is actually taking improv classes to improve his public speaking. So it makes sense that you can improve in one area by doing something that's a little bit fun. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've done some weird stuff. You know, I, I can karaoke in eight different languages. I can, I can dance Love for seven it. hours straight. And a lot of that comes into the speaking style that I have today. Cool. Very neat. Okay. I feel like when a lot of people think of public speaking, regardless of the context that it's in, but especially when it's sort of at a, at scale or in a presentation, in front of a large group, there's a lot of fear around it. And right, a lot of people have said it's up there kind of with the fear of death. Why do you think there is such a strong fear of public speaking? Right. So it's actually a pretty simple one that how many people think about. So I'm happy to expand on it. We need to ask ourselves the following question. Where do we give most of our presentations? It's probably where the answer is, right? Where have we learned this presentation habit? And when you really think about it, whether you're born in Canada, whether you're born in the States or you know, Uruguay, the answer is school. Mm. That's where you learn your presentation habits. So let's break down school for a second. Three things happen. Before we can get to those three things, one thing I want to point out is all of those presentations are mandatory. You don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Mike, hey, Lisa, you want to get breakfast and present all day? Is that something you'd like to do? <laughs> it's, I don't think, uh, except for me and maybe three other people in the country, I don't think anyone else does that. So that aside, three things happen in that curriculum. One, you never get to pick the topic. Hmm. And if you do, it's generally something you're not passionate about. Think about, you know, the renaissance in history you're just like what is that all right that's one two you're always presenting to students who don't really care to listen to you right you know they're often yeah. true <laughs> right and they're just scared because they got to present egypt in 10 minutes so they're not really focused either and the number three teachers teachers are very well educated very well intentioned but also very stressed you got 70 students in a classroom you got a get all of them through presentations. You don't really have time to kind of get through all of that. So let's summarize. 100% of all the presentations you've given so far have, have been topics you never got to pick, to students who don't want to listen, to teachers who are too stressed to coach you. And this behavior gets repeated in everything. Languages, math, sciences, French, music, on and on and on and on. We're taught to believe that public speaking is a chore. If you're at school, it's tied to a grade. And if you're at work, it's tied to a result. And if you fail at any part of that process, 
you get punished for it. Mm. Whether it's a lower grade or a result that you don't get at work, whether it's a promotion or something. So what's the punchline, you two? The punchline is simple. The fear of public speaking has nothing to do with us, but rather the system in which we grew up learning the skill in the first place. That is a huge insight. I had never thought of it that way. That makes so much sense when you put it that way. Yeah, same. <laughs> That's incredible. That's a big aha moment for me. Thank you. Of course. It's kind of interesting because there are different types of fears that people, I guess, think that they're experiencing. I myself, you know, thinking back to the school example, I definitely was somebody who was not a fan of presenting in class. That was just not a thing I would enjoyed. Um, but then I was a case competition nerd as well in university. Oh, so you were? Oh my I gosh, was. like the first. This is so weird. <laughs> Nobody else who under, I've literally been on hundreds of shows. Nobody knows what a case called. This is crazy. <laughs> and I, I found that I got a lot better at it because I did actually care about what I was talking about. Um, and then when I was in the, the corporate world, again, because I was doing the work, it was like I knew it like the back of my hand when I was presenting something to a small group or a larger group, it made it completely different. I still don't love getting up in front of a room of people. Like I'm not going to become a keynote speaker or anything like that, but smaller types of presentations are easier for me. So going back to my question, <laughs> what other types of fears do people experience? Hmm. No one's asked me that one. What other fears do people experience? I, I usually like bucketing everything into a, into one category. And the reason I like doing that, Lisa, is even if it makes it a little less intellectual, it makes it a lot more simpler, I guess, for people to, because, because you know, break it. Oh, there's a fear of anxiety. There's a fear of this. Let's let's bucket this down into one sentence. I think to make this easy for people. The lesson is simple. The fear needs to always lose to the message. Whether you have a fear of anxiety, whether you have a fear of standing up on stage, whether you have a fear of sharing your ideas, it's all the same remedy, in my opinion. And the remedy is that the fear will always be there. It's always going to be there next, right next to every single part. I'm a professional speaker these days, and I still, I still am scared of presentations <laughs> to a certain extent. But the message always wins over the fear mm. every single time. I've always believed that confidence stems from two key areas. One is the obvious one that we all know, preparation. If you just practice mm. more, you know what you're talking about. But the second part that not many people talk about, and no, it's not breathing, and no, it's not drinking a glass of water or power posing. All that stuff is, well, useless in my opinion. I think what's missing is having a belief system. Mm. What do you actually believe in? What do you stand for? What are you actually trying to do with your life? And why are you giving this presentation? Most people don't know that. So let's say you take me as an example. I started master talk when I was 22. And I started coaching senior level executives when I was 23. So in other words, what I'm saying is who in the world am I to coach these executives? I'm a dude in a basement who lives in his mother's basement, and I coach a lot of very high-level people. So why? where is this confidence coming from? The belief system. It's not about saying, oh, I'm confident I'm going to figure this out. No, no. It's about saying that 14-year-old Julia needs me to make videos for on YouTube because she can't afford me. So I have two options. Either I say no to the executive coaching, which means I can't make the high quality stuff that I do on the channel, or I'm going to suck it up, figure out how to get the result, get the result, even if I do it for free the first couple of times and make sure I can charge after for it. 
so I can use those resources to make the videos. Hmm. It's not a vanity thing. It's about saying, okay, this is the belief system. Let's figure it out. And once you stand for something, it's a lot easier. And a question you can ask yourself to figure this out is the following. How would the world change if you were an incredible speaker? Mm. I love that. And I've been talking a little bit lately about finding your voice and the value of it. And I think you kind of have summarized why that's such an important cause is that you form and you deepen your belief system, which then leads to an increased and sort of like very everlasting level of higher confidence. So I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. but I also feel like it's, you're, you're kind of saying like, it's not about you. Like mm -hmm. it's I, when you're the speaker, it's actually not about you. It's about the audience that you're talking to which makes so much you. sense. Yeah, and, and just to add more layer to that, great speakers think about their audience, but exceptional speakers obsess over them, right? They understand their psychology, what they dream about, they aspire to be, and they use that as fuel to make themselves incredible. Like I'll mm -hmm. tell you a quick story, that won't be too long. You know, I gave a keynote in Montreal a couple weeks before COVID hit to a, to a group of maybe three, 400 kids. And I found out 15 minutes before the presentation that I had to deliver half of it in French. <laughs> of course, it's not a big deal. I mean, I speak French, but I, I, I practiced that keynote for four months because it was my biggest one ever. So I really took it seriously, but nobody told me I had to do half of it in another language. Oh so gosh. most people in that situation would go, uh, I'm about to walk on stage. Uh, I'm, I'm screwed, right? Whereas me, it's... No, no, no. I have to figure this out. And I still have to present with confidence. Why? Because those kids have been spending the last three days working on a project that they care about. And the only thing that's missing is how to present it. And if I mess up on stage, it's not just about me messing up and looking bad. I will reinforce the belief system that they can't master public speaking. Mm. And that is unacceptable to me. I'm the only person who can convince them because no, nobody else can pretty much because I'm the one who's similar to their age and stuff. So I need to do it. So it's not about saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just going to drink some water, power pose, figure it. No, 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 it's about saying I need to succeed. Like this mm. presentation better go well because I did not spend four months to come here and betray my audience. It's not going to happen. Love that story. Yeah. Love it really empathy. solidifies it. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about confidence. How does confidence and personality type affect your public speaking skills? Right. So confidence is, is definitely a big one, right? If you can't believe in yourself, you can't expect anyone else to believe in you, especially in the context of messaging and, and the ideas you want to share. So that's, so, that's an, so that's one part of it. The other part is personality. Personality, the way that I like to play this, because this, this is where at some point a lot of people are listening. are like, well, Brandon, I'm introverted. I'm shy. I don't uh, I'm not, I'm not an expert like you and I am an expert, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the classic cookie cutter person who goes, oh yeah, like I'm an introvert. No, I'm definitely someone who's loud and goes to events all the time. It's my type of jam. But the point that I want to drive though, is a lot of the best people I've coached over the years, especially in the case competitions or just in life have been introverts. So what do I want to push with personality type? I want to push the following. There's no correlation between your personality type and how good you are as a speaker. And it, the proof is in the pudding. There's so many great speakers that we know that have completely different personalities, right? I can give you a couple examples off the top of my head. 
Brene Brown is very introverted, hates speaking, is he, but yet is extremely exceptional at it. Mm -hmm. And then you have people like Gary Vee who are kind of yelling at you all the time for some reason, but also very exceptional. And then you have people in the middle like Seth Godin, who's very charismatic, but is also very strict with what you can ask him. Mm -hmm. right? You can't ask him about his family or else he gets really pissed off. Right? So you get, you get very different types of characters. But they all, or Esther Perel, who's a bit kind of groovy and, you know, it's got like, but anyways, the key that I'm driving is they all share something in common. That commonality is that they all have their own unique identity. So the, the way that I like to push it is focus on the easy stuff first, build up your confidence. And when you get into the top five, 10% of speaker range, then you can really start developing your unique identity and push to be world-class. Cool. Cool. Love that. What would you say are the first few steps for someone who wants to go on the journey toward becoming maybe that top five, ten percent best in the world speaker? Yeah, of course. Uh, how about how about I give the easiest one first? This tip that I'm about to give, if you apply this, will improve your life dramatically in communication. And the the tip is called the puzzle method. So public speaking is a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. You know those thousand piece puzzles you kind of put together in your house, especially now since we can't go outside. <laughs> so there's not much else to do. So if I asked, uh, let's say Lisa, and let's let's use Lisa as an example here. Let's say you're doing a puzzle. Which pieces would you start with first, and why? I always start with the outside pieces, particularly the corner pieces, because it helps to set a framework. Right. You played right into the example. Perfect. Help set a framework. So now the question to ask ourselves is why don't we do that in public speaking? We have a presentation in two days at work, in business, in case competitions, at school. So what do we do? We start with the middle. We shove a bunch of content. We get to the presentation. We get to the last slide. It sounds something like this. Oh, please. Thanks. That's probably 97% of the presentations I hear. So how do we fix this? It's actually very simple. Prepare your public speaking presentations like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges first. Present your introduction 50 times, not three times, not five times, 50 times. It's actually not hard. It'll take you an hour, right? It's like a minute each. It's actually not hard. Hmm. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with the terrible ending? Well, we all know the answer to that, right? Terrible movie. Same thing. 50 times, once again, it'll only take you another hour. Two hours of practice will change your life, I guarantee it. You do it that way, and you look at yourself and go, wait a second. I'm pretty good at this public speaking thing. And then with that newfound confidence that you didn't have before, then tackle the middle. But much like a jigsaw puzzle, who does puzzles on their own? Not mm -hmm. anybody that I know. Do it with a friend. To do with a group of people. I mean, you know this, Lisa, in case competitions. You're never alone. You're in this huge, big team, and you're all working together. You mm -hmm. need to find that accountability group in your own life. So that's why I'm a big advocate of Toastmasters. Very inexpensive. You join a club. You meet a couple of people. You, pick, you figure out two people you really like, and you've just practiced with them. Even to this day as a professional keynoter, by the way, all my friends still give me feedback on my presentations. Cool. Yeah. Some great points there. <clears throat> and I love I love the puzzle analogy. It makes so much sense. Brendan, I'm curious to know, do you ever see a correlation between someone's speaking skills and the way that they write? I think what I would say is I personally 
don't necessarily think there's a correlation, but at the same time, it definitely helps. So what I mean by this, so wh why am I saying yes and no? Let me expand. You don't necessarily need to write down your thoughts to get better at structuring them, right? Because I don't like that rabbit hole you need to do. Like That's why I'm not a big fan of hard rules in public space, as you probably have noticed in the way that I've communicated so far. Why do I say that? Because you can easily just open a voice recorder and just communicate the thoughts that mm -hmm. way. Me personally, I write out a lot of my speeches and I actually write out every single one of my YouTube videos so I can search for my thoughts and it does make me better as a speaker. But I'm not necessarily going to say that you need to be a better writer to be a great speaker. I actually think I'm a horrible writer. It's just good to like structure stuff. Like I wouldn't start mm -hmm. a blog. It's not really my thing. So I think the general advice for people that I really want to push is find a medium where you're comfortable adding more thoughts to the conversation, especially if you're someone who's a specialist in one topic. So I'll use a super simple example with you two. You're both career coaches, right? Or is it mm -hmm. just Mike who's a career coach? You're both nope. career? Both, okay, yeah. awesome. Okay, simple. So this is simple. So because of that, what's going to differentiate you as coaches is very different, right? So there's a big difference between a marketing coach and Seth Godin, right? Mm -hmm. And the difference between the two is that the thought leader will always add new knowledge to the world so that other coaches can implement that knowledge onto their clients, right? So the idea is because you're always talking about career coaching, career development, if you have a notepad, if you have a voice recorder where you're kind of just going about your life and you think about weird controversial things that you believe or counterintuitive things that you believe about how to build a career, right, that you can add to your Rolodex, right, that is how you slowly transition from being a coach to being a thought leader or rather being both, right? So that's a good way of, for you to structure. But because you have a system in place to always collect your thoughts, that it, it, it keeps it easier for you to store. So I'll give you an example, right, of career advice since we're a career show. Like a lot of women, when they get multiple offers from the case competition program, they generally ask me for advice. They go, you know, Brendan, uh, which offer should I pick? What criteria should I use? Oh, company three is like paying me $5,000 more. I go, no, no, no. This is what you need to be doing because those people are really talented. They're going to be really big people someday. And I always go, okay, this is what you do. Count the number of women in the organization that have the position that you want. So what I'm saying right now, no one has really explained on a podcast before. So let's say company A, I'm not going to name any companies, goes, there's three women in senior executive roles. Company two has five women in senior executive roles. And company three has 57 women in executive roles. Then the choice becomes obvious. Forget about the diversity inclusion marketing strategies. It's all useless. Count, right? And then go to that company. So that's an example of thought leadership, right? When you say something that you never, not many people necessarily say, but what happens is because you're writing it down, you have it stored somewhere. So then you can repurpose that. So that would be the way that I think about it. Cool. So it sounds like regardless of your writing skill, what's, what really counts is having some sort of a system that allows you to store, analyze, review your thoughts, refine them, keep them as part of your voice. Absolutely. And bringing it back to me, that's how I found out about puzzle. You know, it took me a, before when I used to explain structuring speeches, it used to be very complicated, like other people in the industry. Okay, guys. So there's three parts to this intro conclusion. This is the meaning of it. Everyone's just like, whoa, hey, relax. It's like Lisa would go, you know, keep it plain. 
keep plain simple. You know? <laughs> it can be like part of your bread, by the way. Nice. And you're like a bird too, so it's like a, it's like a plain bird. Anyways, I'm sorry, I'm getting lost. <laughs> but it's the point that I'm driving. Love I don't it. know. I don't know what's going. On. I'm just nerding out a bunch of random things. But the point that I'm driving is, as you get better structuring your thoughts and you when you have that system you can eventually find ideas that are super interesting so puzzle what was happening was i was coaching a client six months ago she had a lot of trouble understanding what i was saying it was probably the first time i had this issue and i wasn't sure how to explain this so i just looked around my house and i saw a puzzle piece somewhere and i just said oh wait a second Public speaking is like puzzles. And then I was saying this, her eyes started lighting. I was like, wait a second. And I needed to write it down mm. before I forgot that I used it ever since. Cool. It's fun when that resonates and you realize, oh, I, there's something here. There's more to it. This is kind of just an off question, but do you carry around like a journal or like a, a booklet to keep your ideas? Yeah. So what I do essentially, close, you're very close. I do, it's just digital. So mm -hmm. I have I have an app called Google Keep because I have an Android phone. But for those who have iPhones, you can use iNotes, I believe. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a structured way of thinking about. And bonus tip, if for those of you who want to use your phones, it is more efficient that way. My my belief is you want to have one notepad solely about the controversial thoughts you have about mm -hmm. your your life, but also about your area of expertise. So let's say for me, I have a Google Keep where I just write all my controversial thoughts. That could be about public speaking life. And then that allows me to figure out everything I disagree with in the industry. And the same way, by the way, Seth Godin did in the marketing space. And that is how then you build thought leadership where more people want to follow you. Cool. Mm. Very neat. Yeah. We have some questions that we'd like to ask of all of our guests that come on the show. Lisa's going to start us off on this. So we'd like to talk about fun in our careers because we don't like to take our careers too seriously. So what would you say is the most fun that you've had in your career so far? Hmm. I think for me, when it comes to master talk, the most fun I've had is the understanding that the more I grow, the more I impact in the sense that, you know, the day that master talk has, you know, 40,000 or whatever the number of counts going to be, that's going to matter to me, not because of the vanity metric, but because it means more people are watching who can't afford my coaching services. And I think there's no better way of running a business than that way. So, so yeah. Awesome. Cool. We also like to think about risk because we think that there is some level of risk in a lot of our career. So what's the biggest risk that you've taken in your career and how did it turn out? Hmm. Risk. Uh, so I used to be an accountant when I was in university. I, I went to I went to accounting, and uh, my job, my goal was to get a job at Price Waterhouse Coopers. I initially thought it was a water bottling company. It's how lost I was <laughs> as a student. But anyways, after I got the job in accounting, and I got my full time offer, that you know, to to a lot of people, that didn't mean much because you know, job at Price is like forty five thousand dollars a year or something. But to me, that was huge because it got me out of poverty. You know, my parents were in like minimum wage jobs. And mm. I was like, wow, Price, if I just work here for 15 more years, I'm going to be a partner and going to make so much money and I'm going to be able to buy bagels and everything. But anyways, the point that I drove is um, I had this epiphany after I did competitions. I, I fell in love with consulting. It's like I need to get a job in, in consulting. And it was a big jump for me. Because going from an accounting degree to technology or management consulting is a very hard jump to make if you don't have the right people, you didn't do the right mm -hmm. work. So that was that was a risk I took. It wasn't huge risk because uh, I already had an offer on the table in case I, I missed, unless I missed the mark. 
on recruitment, but it, but it worked out in the end and I ended up getting a job at IBM. So, so yeah, I think, I think the key is, uh, yeah, take risks, whatever it did calculate a risk. I'm a big fan of calculated risk. I, I don't think I ever would have went after consulting or master talk for the record if I didn't have a safety net. Hmm. Yeah. Planning is key when it comes to risk. Doesn't mean you shouldn't take it though. Absolutely. Great point. What's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? I saw that question coming from a mile away. I knew it was coming. So I'll tell you a story. So when I was 19 and I started university and I was doing my first competitions, you know, it was business competitions as, as, I, as we call them. And uh, I, I, my first case, case competition was with a company called McKinsey. And I didn't know what a McKinsey was. Uh, I got invited to McKinsey Toronto for this uh, this random competition against MBA students. I was like a first semester kid. My tie, let's just say, did not end at my belt. And uh, <laughs> I, I saw my suit from prom. And uh, I don't know how I, I made it to this competition. But anyways, I was talking to one of the senior executives, really nice guys based in the Montreal office. And I asked him, what's, what's the best advice you ever you ever gave people? And he looked at me and he said, think like a partner on day one. Hmm. So what do you mean by that? And he said, even if you're going to be an intern, Brendan, even if you're going to be an associate at a company, you should always think like an executive. Always ask yourself, what would an executive do in, in your shoes? So let's say he would name a couple of examples. Well, if you started a company as an executive, what would be the first thing you do? I would say, well, I probably want to know what the business is like. So I'd probably talk to the other executives. He's like, exactly. So you would get coffees with executives. You would understand them. You would understand their P&Ls, understand their bottom. And I was, he was like, tell me all this stuff. And, I was, and he was, he's, what, he's the youngest partner at McKinsey in, in, in the country right now. I think he got there at like 32, 31, mm-hmm. something like that. Wow. Don't quote me. He's, he's one of the youngest ones at least. But anyways, he said like that. So always think about the bigger picture of what you're trying to do. So let's say you're an intern, you're someone who's an entry-level person at a company. Always think about why is your manager giving you this work? How is this affecting the business? And then as you have more discussions with executives, and by the way, this is a good tell if a company's good or not. I get that question a lot also. Like, how do you know if a company's high quality? I Me, mean, it's simple. Message five vice presidents in your company and see if anyone wants to get coffee with you. And all of them say, no, you're in a bad company because they don't want to up talent, right? That's my, that's my mm. point of view. So like, for example, and, I, and I'm happy to talk about when I worked at PwC, IBM, I messaged those people. I had coffees all the time with them, hmm. right? So you can tell it's a good company to work for because they value young talent. So that would be my advice. Think like an executive on day one. I love that. We often hear the line around just dress for the job you want. But if you just act for the job that you want to hold one day, then why wouldn't you naturally start taking the steps that turn you into that person? And I love your point about using that receptiveness to conversation, coffee chats with executives as sort of a barometer for how you measure sort of the potential for professional development in a place. That's really cool. Of course. And the one thing I want to push here is like it's 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 more than just imagining and visualizing yourself in that role. You know what I found that's very fascinating, especially for those like yourself, Lisa, who have done case competitions. The, what's interesting is because you have so many conversations with executives, you, you just think of them as regular human beings very quickly. Mm. So when you do your first case, you're like, oh, no, that's the vice president of this bank. Like, what am I? But after you talk to him and he's like drinking a wine and he's like, yeah, hey, Lisa, you're so great at this presentation. Brendan, you're so good. Mike, it's like, wait a second. These people are normal. And then after this 10th presentation, you're like, wait a second, these people aren't very good presenters. And then you get, <laughs> and then you get to the job. I think tell you this, by the way. 
a lot of those people, they tell you like, hey, you're much better than the people I work with at uh, this level or that level. So what happens is your level of comfort with executives gets very high relative to other people your age when you start working. So the executives start to, it's not, it's more of a two-way street. It's not just a one-way where you go, I want to be the executive, but rather they start to think you are one too. Hmm. Cool. Huge take on point. I love that. I can totally relate to that. Very, very cool. Brandon, this has been a great conversation. Where can our dear listener go to find out more about you? I, I, you know, to be honest, I think this conversation is more exciting for me than both of you combined, but because I met someone who does case count. But anyways, uh, the to reach, yeah, to contact me, you can check out the YouTube channel. It's just Master Talk in one word, and you can find everything else there. Very cool. Thanks so much for your time today. It was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thank I enjoyed so this. Yeah. yeah, me too. Thank you. Cool. Of course. We'll call that a week for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Brendan Kumara Sammy, our guest. Go check them out. Learn to speak your voice into the world. Make an impact on the world as a speaker. I love it. We hope you're well, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>